the next speaker, though, is uh, Trip Gulick. And uh, Trip, as you know, is at Cornell, where he's the head of the ID division, uh, has been a very active investigator. And we always look forward to, once he gets his mic on, uh, to hearing what, uh, what Trip has to say about, uh, in this case, the retrovirus conference. The retrovirus conference was just a couple weeks ago. It seems longer than that, but it's not. Um, and Trip, the stage is yours. Thanks, Paul. Good morning, everybody. Let's do the old-fashioned way. How many people went to Croy? Raise your hand. Not Okay, 2.3% of you. Great. <laughs> so this will be the review for CROI. There was a lot covered at CROI. What I would like to do is really focus on the ART issues. So epidemiology, ART impacts that. This is data from the NA, that stands for North America Accord Study. It's the biggest data that I've seen yet from the U.S. looking at life expectancy with HIV. So they looked at over 65,000 U.S. and Canadians from 1996 uh, to 2007. In that group, there were over 8,000 deaths. And using that as a model, they estimated that life expectancy at age 20 increased from plus 27 years in the early ART era to 52 years in recent years. So if you add that up, that means a person today who's managed with ART is now living into their 70s, according to this model, which is very close to the general population. They did find differences in some groups. For instance, when you compared men and women, particularly in the later years, men were experiencing greater increases in life expectancy, 55 years versus 46 for women. And then other subgroups also demonstrated differences in life expectancy in 2006 and 7. Injection drug users, had lower life expectancy increases than men who have sex with men. African-Americans had lower life expectancy than either whites or Latinos. And as you might expect, people with CD4s less than 100 had drastically reduced life expectancy compared with those who had CD4s over 350. So this is good news for our patients. We can tell people if you're managed appropriately with ART, you can expect a, to live a long, happy life or maybe not happy, but long life. <clears throat> Other interesting data was an update of the CDC cascade of what's actually going on here in the U.S. As you know, 1.2 approximately million Americans are infected with HIV, and about 20% don't know they're infected, so 80% are diagnosed. And here's an astounding statistic. Of those who are known diagnosed with HIV, only 44% of them are actually currently receiving care. So more than half the people in this country who know they're HIV infected are not in regular care. But, so that's bad news. Good news is of those in care, close to 90% are receiving ART within 12 months of their first visit. And of them, over 70% are actually suppressed below 200 copies per mil. So that's good news. If you do the math and you look at the number of people suppressed compared with the total number estimated to be HIV infected in our country, only 24% of people are suppressed below the limit of detection. 
that's a stunning statistic. It really speaks to this whole idea, can we really rely on ART treatment as prevention? Will that be a reliable approach when currently only about a quarter of people with HIV are suppressed on meds? A couple groups were significantly less likely to be prescribed ART, or if they were taking it, less likely to be suppressed, the viral load level. And that was African Americans more likely than whites, and women more likely than men. As I said, this is the biggest group of U.S. data to help inform what's going on with the treatment cascade. There were a couple of uh, important studies that helped update where we are with antiretroviral therapy. This was a poster, but I thought a really useful poster. Um, if you're like me, you may have looked at genotypes for protease inhibitors before and wondered about those minor PI mutations. Do they really have clinical significance? And this study really settles the case. So this is coming out of the Swiss HIV cohort study. They looked at over 1,000 patients who came in, had baseline genotypes, and then were prescribed two nukes plus a PI or a boosted PI, um, and then followed for 10 years. So they took the opportunity to look at a lot of minor PI variations and to see what impact they had on virologic response. Because of the year, as you might expect, most common PIs used were either boosted lopinavir or nelfinavir. And uh, what you see over here is right from their poster. It's looking at the time to virologic suppression on the left or the time to virologic failure on the right. And two groups are looked at, both uh, a univariate and a multivariate analysis. There are a number of minor PI mutations listed here, so substitutions at positions 10, 36, 60, 62, 63, 64, 71, 77, and 93. Again, all considered to be minor PI mutations. And what you can see from the back of the room is that there is no impact either on time to virologic suppression or on virologic failure. So this should reassure us that we can ignore these minor PI mutations on the genotype. A new compound in a single tablet regimen is being called the quad, as you might expect. That means there's four drugs in one pill. And this is an investigational agent containing tenofovir, emtricitabine, or FTC, the investigational integrase inhibitor, L-vitegravir, and then the investigational booster, cobacistat. So all four drugs in one pill, one pill, once-a-day therapy. What's cobacistat, also known as COBE to its friends? Um, like ritonavir, it's an inhibitor of CYP3A. However, cobacistat has no antiretroviral activity. It's a weak inhibitor of CYP2D6, but doesn't have effects on other cytochrome enzymes or other transporters of drugs. However, it does inhibit a renal tubular transporter called MATE1, and what that means is if you use a cobacistat-containing regimen, and that could be either boosting a PI or an integrase inhibitor, you will expect to see an increase in the serum creatinine on the order of 0.1 to 0.2. However, this has been carefully looked at and does not correlate with a change in filtration rate, but it may challenge us in terms of management, particularly in people on tenofovir. So this was the big uh, phase three studies of the quad were presented at the CORI meeting. Here's the design of one of them. So 700 treatment-naive patients with any CD4 came into the study and were randomized to receive the quad 
or the comparator arm was tenofovir, FTC, and efavirenz co-formulated, so one pill. Um, it was placebo-controlled, so each of the patients took two pills over the course of the study. They were stratified by viral load level. This one, look, comparing the quad to efavirenz-based, was done in the U.S. and Puerto Rico, and the primary endpoint was a snapshot look at how many people were suppressed below 50 at week 48. This was a non-inferiority study. The margin for difference was preset at a 12% difference. At baseline, predominantly men, almost 90% men, the viral load was just over 50,000, and the CD4 a very high 390. So here are the overall virologic results. Here's a snapshot of week 48 responses, and people in both groups did well. So 88% of the quad versus 84% of the efavirenz-based regimen suppressed below 50 at week 48. Here's the spread on that, and you can see it excludes a minus 12% difference. So they concluded that the quad was non-inferior to the efavirenz-based regimen. Interestingly, CD4s were statistically significantly higher from baseline in the quad at 239 versus over 206 in the efavirenz group. What about resistance? Very few patients failed virologically. You can see only 4 to 5%. Of those, only about 2% in each group actually had genotypes that could be looked at. The quad, remember, contains an integrase inhibitor. They did see integrase inhibitor mutations selected in this small number of patients, along with nucleoside mutations shown at the bottom, primarily M184V, although notably three K65Rs selected in that group. In the efavirenz regimen, again, people who failed that, not unexpectedly, had non-nuke mutations, um, and a few had M184V as well. A companion study that was actually not an oral presentation but a poster was a second look at the quad, very similarly designed study, 700 treatment-naive patients, but this time the comparator arm was a protease inhibitor-based regimen, which you see here. So it's the quad versus tenofovir, FTC, and boosted atazanavir. And again, placebo controlled. Uh, the, again, the primary endpoint was a snapshot, how many less than 50 at week 48. And again, a non-inferiority study with the margin of minus 12. At baseline, once again, 90% men. The viral load level in this study a little higher, just over 70,000 at baseline. And again, a high CD4, um, close to 400. Here's the snapshot analysis, and again, you see people in both groups doing very well. So 90% in the quad group suppressed below 50, compared with 87% in the atazanavir group. Again, here's the spread. It excludes minus 12, so they conclude once again that the quad was non-inferior to an atazanavir-based regimen. Interestingly, no difference in CD4 cell increases between the two groups. Here's the resistance analysis, and you do see some differences here. Once again, the quad folks who failed, and not a lot of them, only uh, about 2 to 3% altogether, quad folks with the integrase inhibitor select integrase mutations and M184V. Look what happens in the tenofovir, FTC, and atazanavir group. No PI mutations, no nucleoside mutations in that group, as we've seen in other studies. So these are the two big phase three studies of the quad. They, will, they are at the FDA right now, so this is under consideration for approval as a new drug. And it will be the third one-pill, once-a-day regimen uh, available to our patients. 
The next integrase inhibitor in line is dolutegravir. That's in phase two. We saw the 96-week results of a phase two study of dolutegravir in treatment-naive patients. The study is known as SPRING-1. Oh, it's the first day of spring, so how appropriate, right? So uh, people received tenofovir, FTC, and then one of three doses of dolutegravir, as you see in the colors, versus an efavirenz-based regimen in light blue. And you see uh, for these uh, 205 patients, all treatment-naive, that roughly 80% of all patients in the study were suppressing viral load levels below 50, and that these results were durable out to 96 weeks, showing that dolutegravir as part of a combo regimen seemed quite comparable to efavirenz. Interestingly, in the dolutegravir group, they saw no selection of integrase inhibitor mutations through the end of 96 weeks. There were more uh, side effects leading to discontinuation with the fabrins, about 10%, versus dolutegravir, about 3%. And just to make it complicated, dolutegravir also suppresses a renal transport enzyme. So you do see increases in serum creatinine on the order of 0.1 to 0.15 with dolutegravir. Again, this is not um, impacting glomerular filtration rates. Uh, phase three studies of dolutegravir are fully enrolled, and we have not seen those results, but anticipate them soon. And yes, it too will be co-formulated in a one-pill, once-a-day regimen. This time, abacavir, 3TC, and dolutegravir all in one pill. Why did they choose those three drugs? Oh, right. It's the same company that makes all three. An interesting investigational agent is GS7340. This is a prodrug for tenofovir. This was an early study, um, only 10 days of monotherapy, looking at a small group of patients, as you see, only 36 patients. They were randomized to either tenofovir at full dose or one of three doses of GS7340 or a placebo. And what they found was that this drug or this investigational drug has potent antiretroviral activity. You can see the change at 10 days is roughly on the order of a log with any of the three doses of GS7340. Now you're thinking to yourself, do we really need a prodrug for tenofovir? Why would we be interested in such a thing? And the reason that this is being developed is because of difference in penetration in tissues. So what you see here are plasma concentrations of tenofovir with the standard formulation in light blue, the TDF formulation. And then in the colored lines, you see this new prodrug, GS7340. This is a log scale. So what you can see is the new preparation, you get greatly reduced plasma levels of GS7340. Remember, it's turned into tenofovir, but not in the plasma. And the thinking there is, well, perhaps that would avoid some of the bone and renal toxicities. So it's not concentrated in plasma but it is concentrated in tissues, intracellular PBMCs. Here we're looking at tenofovir diphosphate, that's the active compound, and you can see that GS7340 achieves much higher levels in these intracells than tenofovir does. Again, the theory here is that that perhaps could avoid toxicity, either renal or bone, but time will tell. So this is being moved forward and also being combined with other compounds in new quads that you'll hear more about. HIV eradication was one of the central themes at the Croy meeting. 
And uh, cure is something that people are talking about. As you know, the number of people that have been cured of HIV on the planet is one. And, and here he is. He actually is very open about this. His name is Timothy Ray Brown. He's an American who was living in Berlin. And you've heard the story. He had AML. And then uh, while on heart, he was totally suppressed and then underwent a bone marrow transplant with a donor who had the CCR5 deletion. So he went ablative chemotherapy, total body irradiation, got the transplant, went off of his ART. His viral load went down. His CD4s also went down. But then over time, climbed back up. He had rejection, went on rejection meds, had a second bone marrow transplant, and then appears to not have detectable viremia or HIV detectable anywhere in his body. It's been now four years since that happened, and he now has remains with an undetectable viral load, and his CD4 count has risen back to the normal level. So people are saying that this is the first cure. This approach will obviously not work for many of our patients. So 30% mortality associated with bone marrow transplants. So one of the questions that came up at the CROI meeting was, which part of this cascade of events really led to the cure? One of the thoughts was if you just get a bone marrow transplant, an autologous bone marrow transplant, and ablative chemotherapy, would that do the same thing? So this is a collection of cases uh, from three sites, Pittsburgh, City of Hope, and UCLA, where they looked at a number of patients who had lymphoma and then underwent um, autologous bone marrow transplants, and they carefully studied whether they could find HIV DNA. And the news, as you see here, is all 10 patients continued to have evidence of HIV DNA. So it didn't seem like simply ablative chemotherapy and an autologous bone marrow transplant would be the solution. Now, people are thinking moving towards cure, and there are sort of two approaches that are going on. Mario Stevenson is going to consider an immune-based approach later today. What was said at CROI was this whole idea of activating the latent CD4 reservoir. So as you know, in our patients today who are on ART, if they're suppressed completely, even for years, they still have about a million cells in their body which are latently infected. So one of the approaches to cure would be to try to select those cells, activate them without activating all the other CD4s, and then the hope would be those cells would be killed and we could proceed towards cure. Well, how are we doing? A lot of people have tried drugs that activate CD4s. This study was one of the first successful approaches. So there's a drug out there known as Varinostat, and that's actually an FDA-approved drug for T-cell leukemia. This was one of the first studies to look to see if this drug, an HDAC inhibitor, could selectively activate CD4s. So what they reported was that they looked at six patients um, who had been suppressed on ART. They isolated their latent CD4 cells um, and then looked at them in the lab. And as you can see in yellow, this is the viremia associated in the lab with those CD4s. And there's very low levels of viremia, less than 50 copies coming from that latently infected pool of cells. Then they give the patients one dose of varinostat, re-isolated their CD4s, and look what happened. So in blue is what happened after the single dose of the drug. And what you see is a striking increase in viremia, indicating that these latent cells were now being activated to produce virus. And it's on the order of 1.5 to 10-fold increases 
in virus from this latent cell pool. They concluded that they had selectively activated the resting CD4s with varinostat, a single dose. Now, you might say, why a single dose? Well, it turns out varinostat has a positive AIMS test. Remember, that's a bacterial test looking for the potential for carcinogenicity. So this drug is associated with that. Um, so the FDA was very careful about giving this to patients and allowed these investigators only a single dose. There is a study in Australia right now where they were allowed to do 10 days of dosing, uh, so we expect to hear from that. So this is the first study to show you could selectively activate CD4s from someone who's suppressed on ART. Will that work? Well, that was considered by Sean and colleagues from Johns Hopkins. The hypothesis, again, is that you target the reservoir, you select just the resting CD4s to produce virus, and then cytotoxic T lymphocytes will seek out and kill those cells. Sounds like a good idea. What they found was actually that you could activate the cells, but that the CTL, the cytotoxic T lymphocytes, were not um, robust enough to actually kill the cells. So what they hypothesized at CROI was that you need something to boost the CTL response. Well, what's that? Essentially, vaccine approaches have been used to try to boost the CTL. So they postulated, without showing the data, that if you could activate the cell reservoir and boost the CTL response at the same time, maybe you could achieve that goal. So expect to hear more about this approach um, in future conferences. And then another approach that you've heard about is this whole idea of gene therapy, targeting the gene that codes the CCR5 receptor. So Pablo Tabas and colleagues at UPenn produced, uh, gave an updated um, presentation on where they are with this gene therapy approach. So basically, they're using something called zinc finger nucleases. This is a special kind of molecule that actually clips out certain portions of the genome. And what's aimed at here, again, is the gene that codes for the CCR5 receptor. So they've uh, isolated these compounds and then put them in an adenovirus vector. And now they have taken patients, taken their CD4s out by apheresis, combined it with this virus, and they actually did find that about a third of the CD4s now had their CCR5 gene clipped out. They re-infused the, the uh, clipped out along with all the other CD4s into the patient and followed them over the course of a year. And you could, still could detect these cells a year later. They weren't the majority of the population, but they were a portion of the population. And then they, what they described that was new was what happened when some of these patients went off antiretroviral therapy. So all had been suppressed. So what you see here is in purple, something we don't do clinically, a treatment interruption. Not surprisingly, all six of the patients had their viral load levels go up. But look what happens. Some of them actually come down while they're still off their antiretroviral therapy. And this one patient shown in green actually drops to undetectable viral load levels, has a little blip there, but clearly maintains a viral load below detection off therapy. Interestingly, he was a heterozygote for CCR5. So it only had half the genes that other people would have. So again, we're talking single patients with this approach. Um, it's interesting. We'll have to wait and see how applicable this will be. Another big focus at the CROI meeting was prevention. And as you know, over the last two years, we've heard a number of studies that have aimed at new prevention strategies. This is a summary slide that shows you some of the results 
um, that you've heard so much about. Uh, what we're looking at here is effect size. So this is one of the slides you're not supposed to show, which lines up all the responses across a number of different studies. But I put it here just to give us a sense of what's going on. So as you know, HPTN052 was treating the positive partner and showed a 96% reduction in HIV to the negative partner. Some of the other studies you see here are PrEP, Partners PrEP and Tenofovir, uh, the TDF2 study that's in heterosexuals in Africa. Mike mentioned male circumcision. IPREX was PrEP in gay men in uh, a number of countries around the world. Uh, Caprisa is the microbicide, and you know about the Thai vaccine. And then FemPrep was the study of PrEP in women. One of the reasons I show this slide is look at the difference in response rates, particularly with the PrEP regimens. So it goes everywhere from 73% efficacy all the way down to 0% efficacy. Why the difference? Well, Croy this year told us why. Big surprise here, it's adherence. Apparently, you have to take the drugs for them to work. Who knew? Here's a related um, finding. Caprisa 004 was using a 1% tenofovir vaginal gel, as, as you saw, about a 40% protection on that. One of the concerns about using gels with antiretrovirals in them is would you select resistance? So the CDC took a careful look um, using ultra-sensitive drug screening in the women. Um, they identified 38 women who had received the tenofovir gel and then seroconverted, so became HIV positive on the study. 33 had swabs available. 21 could be amplified and carefully looked at. Three had detectable tenofovir levels, including one with very high levels. The good news was they only found one of these patients had K65R, the, re the mutation associated with tenofovir resistance, and it was the woman with the high level. So they estimated that there was a very low risk of developing tenofovir resistance with this gel. We also heard the first study of an improved tenofovir gel used as a rectal microbicide. This is from the Microbicide Trials Network, MTN007. And it was a phase one randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled of tenofovir 1% as a rectal microbicide. You may have heard prior results that used the vaginal formulation rectally. The osmolality of that solution was high, and rectal leakage was an important side effect. And no one wants rectal leakage. So what they did was to reduce the glycerin formulation in this study, and it turns out it was much better tolerated. So they tested it in 65 HIV-negative men um, and women, um, all of whom had reported receptive anal intercourse. It was a forearm trial, so there was nanoxinil 9, the 1% tenofovir, HEC, which is a placebo gel, and then one group got no gel at all. There were some minor side effects, but no differences among the forearms, and 87% of those randomized to tenofovir said that they would use it again. So this is a phase one, shows a positive result, um, early result, and it's going to proceed now to phase two development. But back to these PrEP studies. So IPREX was the study in gay men, uh, which was effective. Again, about 40% reduction um, in people that were randomized to receive tenofovir FTC as PrEP. And this is one of the studies to look at the pharmacokinetics. So they looked at 48 cases, people who were on tenofovir FTC and ultimately seroconverted, and then matched them with three controls, including one who said they had unprotected receptive anal intercourse. Here's the big news. Tenofovir was detected in only 8 to 11% of the cases, those who seroconverted, 
compared with 40 to 50 percent of the controls. So the cases were people who were simply not taking the tenofovir. In fact, they had data from a separate PK study to say, well, this was supposed to be taken once a day on the study. What if you took it less frequently? And if you only took two doses a week, they estimated a 76% risk reduction, which is not good enough. But four to seven doses a week, you can see over 97% efficacy. Again, it's adherence. The Parker's PrEP is the biggest study of PrEP uh, with over 4,700 discordant couples, so one positive, one negative. PrEP went to the negative partner. Um, women and men represented on this study. These were the final results. You can see 1,500 patients randomized to either tenofovir PrEP, tenofovir FTC PrEP, or a placebo. Here's the number of HIV infections, and you can see greatly reduced in the two PrEP arms on the order of 70 to 75%. When they broke it down by women and men, both benefited from the PrEP strategy. They, too, did a PK study, and again, similar theme. They found tenofovir was detected in only about 25 to 35% of the people that converted, seroconverted on PrEP, and for the controls, 80 to 83% had tenofovir in their systems. Once again, you gotta take the drug for it to work. Overall, they estimated about an 86 to 90% reduction in the risk of HIV with taking PrEP. So, this was all going on, and then the FEMPREP study was announced last year. This was a study exclusively in women, and it, the study was stopped early because of no difference between the two groups. This was a randomized study. So PrEP in this study, tenofovir FTC, did not protect heterosexual African women compared with placebo. There was no difference. Well, how do we put all these studies together? Again, it turns out to be adherence. So when they looked at the women in adherence, 95% said to the investigators, I'm taking my drugs. And if they looked at pill counts, almost 85 to 90% were not returning the pills, so they seemed to be taking. But when they looked at drug levels, only 26% actually had measurable drug levels. So in short, this study failed because the women were not taking the PrEP. Well, every study of PrEP I've showed you has been tenofovir FTC. Aren't there any other drugs to try for PrEP? Yes, there are. So we're about to start the first study of PrEP here in New York. This was not presented in CROI. Paul says it's a shameless advertisement for our PrEP study. But we're going to be looking at Maraviroc-based regimens. So as you know, Maraviroc's an entry inhibitor. It's concentrated in vaginal and rectal tissues and uh, well-tolerated and, most importantly, not used in treatment regimens very often. So we're going to be looking for uh, HIV-negative gay men who are at risk um, and going to enroll 400. I just got the news yesterday that they've now approved us to also add a cohort of women. So that'll be coming soon. If you're interested, give us a call. That's 212-746-4177 if you'd like to refer a patient. This is going to be done through the NIH-sponsored HIV Prevention Trials Network. Last slide, what about circumcision? An update on circumcision from Uganda shows that it's quite effective as it's rolled out into the community. Um, what they first showed was that circumcision was being taken up. So only 6% of non-Muslim men were circumcised in 2000, and now almost a quarter of men. So it's becoming more socially acceptable. And what they found is that HIV incidence, specifically in non-Muslim men, decreased. If you look at the bottom line here, for the for last year, 
there was a 42% decrease in HIV incidence in non-Muslim men who were circumcised. Now, they had two sets of controls. They had Muslim men and they had all women, and the difference in HIV incidence in those two groups did not change. So they ascribed this to widespread use, the decrease in incidence to widespread use of male circumcision. So that's CROI in a nutshell, and I will stop and thank you for your attention. Great trip. Um, as always, we love questions, and especially question cards, because we can get through a bunch of them quickly. Uh, but if you do uh, have a burning question, there are microphones as well in the, in the middle aisle. Um, maybe, uh, Tripp, while people get organized, I'll ask you to comment on what, why, why do you think the adherence uh, rates were so different in those three studies? Do that, does that help inform us as we go forward thinking about PrEP? A very astute question by Dr. Volberding. So why the big differences in PrEP? If you combined up all those studies, the one that did the best were the discordant couples. So the negative partner of an HIV-positive person is going to be the most motivated probably to take something that they think will help reduce their risk of infection because they're encountering it every day, essentially, from their partner. So remember, the efficacy rate in that group was almost 90% in people that had measurable drug levels. Compare that with the FEMPREP study in women. I, I skipped over this a bit, but when you characterized who were these women, a large majority were less than 25 years old, so young, and something like 60% reported that they were at little or no risk of HIV. So you might guess, well, this is a patient population that would be very not motivated to take PrEP, particularly if they had any side effects at all. So I'm guessing the difference that we're seeing really relates to do people feel they're at risk and do people think they're, that it really works or not. Remember, all the PrEP studies I've shown you so far all had a placebo arm, and so they were instructed carefully. We don't know if this stuff works, and you have a 33 to 50% chance of not getting anything anyway. I think what's going to be interesting is the next generation of PrEP studies, including our own, which will actually have no placebo control. So everybody will know that they're getting something that could reduce their risk of HIV infection. So time will tell. Isn't it sort of the case, though, that um, the HPT and 052 study makes PrEP in serodiscordant couples sort of not very important anymore because you'd probably just rather treat the infected member of the partner? Now that's an interesting thought. So 052 enrolled um, discordant couples, one's positive, one's negative. And if you treat the positive person, reduce their viral load, you greatly impacted their risk of transmitting to the negative partner. That's good. And Paul even just said, so it makes treating the negative person not that important. It turns out 052 showed us conclusively that people sometimes have sex outside their relationships. <laughs> I know that's a big shock to everyone in the room. So just treating the positive partner did not protect the negative partner who had sex with someone else from getting HIV. So you might theorize, well, right. both approaches are probably going to make sense. 
Trip, there are a lot of questions about prep, but there's also one uh, about the quad. Um, explain why you would, why one might use that as opposed to the efavirenz-based uh, triple fixed dose formulation. Great. So the answer is we don't know really why would you select one or the other. So why would you select the efavirenz-based regimen? Well, we've had a lot of experience. It's been around since 2006. We know the, the side effects if they're going to happen. We know what the resistance barrier is. It's well tolerated. People do well. Why would you pick something new? Well, there's a group of people who don't tolerate efavirenz particularly well, as we've all experienced. We're still worried about teratogenicity with efavirenz. There are other reasons why you may want to seek another regimen that's not efavirenz, but still one pill, one a day. So might you move to the integrase inhibitor quad? Um, perhaps you would consider that for some patients. It's not clear right at this time what's the who's the best patient for a quad regimen. But certainly anyone who, who you think might have a problem with efavirenz or is on efavirenz and not tolerating it could be potentially switched over to quad. Although, having said that, there's no data to support switching, but probably a reasonable thing to do. Uh, one questioner uh, asked, uh, I don't think it requires exactly a response, but another possible role for PrEP would be uh, couples desiring um, uh, uh, that babies uh, might take it to, um, to allow safe sex, uh, even, if the, even if the male partner was positive. Yeah, the only concern I have about that is L-Vitegravir is investigational. We really don't have a lot of experience in terms of teratogenicity with that. No, no, I don't think they're referring to uh, the quad. This was kind of in general that prep, uh, for, oh, sorry, oh, prep. For, for a woman desiring pregnancy might be an attractive approach. And people have suggested that. Yeah. yeah. Um, question about um, the er eradication uh strategies that you talked about, and the, the question is, uh, there, it's possible that HIV is in a lot of different cells, renal epithelium and others. Why do you focus so much on the, on the CD4 cells as a reservoir? I think it's, that's a good question. Why do we focus on the latently infected CD4 reservoir? It's certainly the biggest reservoir of HIV. I mentioned it's about a million cells. Um, in the body, even in someone who's suppressed on current therapies. There are other potential cells that could be infected. Macrophages could be infected. Importantly, central nervous system cells could be HIV infected. So this is sort of a first step targeting the biggest reservoir, but clearly there's going to be other approaches that are important. You're going to hear later from uh, Serena Spudich, who's a neurologist, who's going to talk about some of these issues as well. A question, why isn't there a campaign for circumcision in the U.S.? Good. Um, the three studies that have really shown male circumcision works were all done in heterosexual African men. Uh, rates of circumcision are actually higher in the U.S. than they are in Africa in general. Um, you might ask, what about gay men? And there's really no data uh, that circumcision is protective or effective in avoiding HIV. Um, so I think there, it's practical reasons that many U.S. sexually active men are already circumcised. Question about these combination pills that end up having a drug, whether it's FTC or 3TC, that has such a low barrier for resistance. Is there a reason to think about getting rid of those drugs? 
you might think so on basic principles, but the clinical data I showed you is that they work very well. So most people taking these single tablet regimens, STRs, uh, do really well. We know that from clinical experience with tenofovir FTC efavirenz. Two out of three of those drugs have low genetic barriers, yet when you combine all three, highly effective. And we know for sh from short-term data with this new quad pill that it also is highly effective and that you don't select out resistance mutations. Um, with the PrEP studies, you said a lot of it looks like non-adherence, but could there be other factors such as tissue concentrations or me metabolic effects of the drugs? There could be, and that's been, um, people are beginning to look and see if that's true. Clearly, when you're talking about PrEP as a preventative, you want to make sure the drugs are getting to the areas where people are exposed to HIV. So obviously, you're interested in what are the vaginal concentrations of the drugs, what are the rectal concentrations, what are the oral concentrations. And so people are beginning to look at those. Um, question about the, the booster uh, in the quad, the cobacystat. Um, uh, Questions about nephrotoxicity, um, having seen some of the tenofovir renal effects, can you comment on any signal there? So as I mentioned, it does affect one of the renal transporters, and so creatinines will go up with cobacystat, 0.1 to 0.2, something you might not notice, but you might notice. But it turns out that that's uh, just an effect on the transporter. It's not affecting renal function. So we're all going to have to be very careful once cobacystat is out there because people most likely will also be on tenofovir. And so you're going to see these slight increases in creatinine, and we're going to have to know what to do with that. Um, obviously, check a UA would be a practical approach. Um, proteinuria would be an early sign of tenofovir toxicity. So if you don't see it, that's a bit reassuring. The other thing to say is when you take Kobe the creatinine goes up right away and then stabilizes. So it doesn't continue to go up and get higher and higher. Remember that dolutegravir, the third integrase inhibitor, does the same thing with a different renal transporter. So you will see in slight increases with dolutegravir as well. So what if you took a regimen with tenofovir and dolutegravir you know, it's going to be a little bit confusing to look at the increases in creatinine. We're going to have to uh, be careful about that. So Tripp was great at staying on time. I've been bad at letting us go over time. So thank you again, Tripp. Sure. Great, great talk. And now we get to exercise our fingers again before Jim comes up uh, by, <laughs> uh, by doing a few more demographics. Um, we want to know where you work, um, the kind of practice. And I, th I think some of these questions are a little bit hard. I'm not sure it always is so easy, but go ahead and um, try to sort out uh, the nature of your employment. So uh, by far, people are consider themselves to be hospital-based or community-based clinics. Great. How many years, I've already said we've been doing this for 20 years, how many years have you attended uh, the full ISUSA New York course? First year or two, I've never missed one. 
All right, now, would the 3.4% of people that have never missed one stand up? I'm already standing. There you go. Excellent. It's really tremendous. Thank you. Um, we, uh, Trip already did this. Um, let me just uh, pass it by. We know that uh, a relatively small fraction, I think he said 3.4%, um, attended the retrovirus conference. <laughs> All right. You're, you, you're overestimating. Um, have you already attended a post-Croy update? Yes or no? Five point four percent have, and I, it's my contention that there aren't very many of those post-Croy updates around anymore. I think uh, fifteen years ago, my sense was that there were more of them, so we, we, we treat this as part of that. Um, so, great, I think that was the last of the extra demographics.